Kedovji. Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is back with you. Appreciate you all subscribing and listening to the podcast. I have another wonderful topic to talk about and a wonderful guest to join us here today. Michael Bernard has joined us. He's the chief strategist, founder of the Futures Electric. Mike, I appreciate you joining me today on Two Nobodies. Welcome to the show. Uh, Rupesh, pleasure to be a nobody with you. I am glad you're embracing that nobody thing. I am always get a bit nervous of somebody thinking that they're a nobody, but uh, I'm glad you're taking it on. The future is electric. That's what you're, that's the firm that you're working for. Tell us about that. Cause the future is electric. I, I wonder if people are like, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, yeah. So it's a riff off a really basic thing. Um, there's a short list of climate actions that'll work. I, I have my version. Project Drawdown has their version. Others have their version. But we tend to unify on a few things. And one of them is electrify everything. You know, and, and that's a short way of saying electrify everything you can um, because it's going to be more efficient, more effective, more climate friendly, and more economically viable. Um, you know, when we start pricing the negative externalities of carbon dioxide and methane, um, mm -hmm. electricity that's powered by renewables that powers electric things like trucks and like heat pumps is by definition going to be the cheapest, best alternative. So the future is electric is a riff on that. And so you say electrify where you can, that doesn't necessarily mean like, do you think that every sector at some point is going to be electrified? Oh yeah. I've got uh, projections of marine shipping, aviation, iron, et cetera, et cetera, through time, through mm. 2100. Um, the reality is the, the alternatives are burnable fuels of some sort mm. versus electric electricity as an energy source. That's mm. uh, so a direct use of electricity. And so we can go through, as we think about that, the only low carbon, low pollution way to create a burnable fuel is by using electricity and biomass and using that as energy. And that's always going to be more expensive than just directly using electricity if you can. Mm. Um, and so I've gone through all of ground transportation, all of maritime transportation, et cetera. And so we take ground transportation as an example. Um, everything is going to be battery electric or grid tied. Um, you know, we, we live in a weird outlier continent uh, in North America where we're approaching 0% electric heavy rail. Uh, meanwhile, India is approaching 100% electric rail. It's at uh, 86 or 87% now, aiming for 100% by 2025. China's at 72% electrified high-speed and high-speed rail as well mm. for freight and passengers. Um and it's going to be building another 10,000 kilometers of high-speed electrified freight and passenger rail in the next decade or so. So it's going to be 100% approaching. Um, Europe is at 60%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's only mm -hmm. here in North America that we don't see overhead catenary lines and a pantograph going up to them driving the trains. And that's because of a legacy of robber barons. Um, but everywhere in the world eventually is going to get the message. Um, and so that's heavy rail. Trucks right now we're going through this amazing uh, two weeks of testing trucks mm. that's going on. And the Tesla You're talking about like the Tesla, Tesla semis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Tesla semi is killing. It did a, mm. you know, 1600 kilometers in a single day with a couple of charge spots. Mm. And, you know, that's 
95% of trucking. Um, right. right now, battery energy density is improving. People keep saying, well, battery energy density is insufficient. But every, every year or two, we see a massive increase in battery energy density. This year, we mm-hmm. saw a doubling. You know, um, and so, and there's another 5x in the pipeline with the same chemistries. So we're going to see more than sufficient battery juice um, in the in, in game for that. All, all cars, obviously, fuel cells are lost. Yeah. You know, small yeah. vehicles. Yeah. I, you know, I've recently ridden scooters and I've driven a Tesla in New Zealand when I was down there for, mm. you know, on digital nomading. You know, it's just, that's all going to be electric. So then we get to yeah. mar- mar- maritime shipping. I'll give yeah. you the example from um, China. They just launched a 700 container ship, not a big one, because the big ones are 24,000 containers and cross the Pacific, but a river ship for the Yangtze, 700 containers, 1,000 kilometer regular route, electric. And what it does is it uses mm. containerized batteries, a standard shipping container, mm-hmm. but it's got batteries. And they pull it out. What kind of batteries are those, port. Mike? Uh, in that one, I think they're lithium ion. But they could be sodium, okay. they could be something else. Right? There's a bunch of chemistries there. This is part of the stuff that people miss about batteries. There's a lot of different ways to store mm. energy. It's not it's it is actually rocket science. Electrochemistry is one of the hardest it's the it's the hardest end of chemistry. Mm. Um, and I say that as someone who kind of rebuilt my brain a few years ago to be a bad imitation of a chemical process engineer. Mm. And who I have PhD chemistry, chemical engineer nerd fans based upon my actual attempts to do it right sufficiently well. Um, But a thousand uh, kilometer route, and it's just replaceable containers of batteries. It's like swapping Mm -hmm. a battery out of your, you know, old digital cassette recorder or something. You just pop a battery out, you put a new battery. Like a modular kind of system. But it's containers. Yeah. 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 Right. Like I was in uh, uh, a local manufacturer of redox flow batteries recently, uh, Infinity. They've just... um, they, they do a, a vanadium redox flow technology. And I was looking at one of their finished containers because they ship them as modular things. It's 26 metric tons. It's got 14,000 liters of their electrolytes or vanadium electrolytes in it. And But it's just a box and you just it's a shipping container. It can be moved by shipping container cranes and picked up by shipping container ground vehicles and dropped on shipping container yards and plugged into charge. And then you can drop it on a thing. Now, they, it's not a good one for marine uh, transportation because mm. the battery energy density in those is low. You know, mm. But that's the model, right? Um, Tesla ships their, um, their mega packs as container-sized batteries. Um, when I spoke to uh, the folks at Vatsila, Andy Tang, who runs their uh, energy storage and optimization business globally, and mm-hmm. has apparently seen 900% growth in his business over the past five wow. years. Okay. Um, they they ship in um, in containers, so it's just the same stuff, right? And so, you know, the they've got thirty six containers. They dot up and down the thousand kilometers. Some are charging. Some are going to the mm-hmm. that ship. Others are going to the other ship. So what that all turns out to, and my projection of maritime shipping through twenty one hundred, yeah. all inland shipping like Great Lakes shipping and Saint Lawrence shipping mm-hmm. and Mississippi shipping, that's all going to be electric. Mm-hmm. Like that makes all, sense. Yep. Um, then there's short sea shipping, which is crossing small distances, usually close to shore, like in Northern Europe, between Sweden and Germany or Sweden and Denmark or something like that, between the UK and, and France. It's all short sea shipping. Mm. And two thirds of that is going to electrify as well. 
Um, I was recently in Glasgow um, with Stenosphere, which runs a whole bunch of routes in Northern Europe. And I gave them the battery energy density projection, which means that um, by about 2040, we'll be able to see 1,200 nautical miles of uh, 1,200 nautical miles to kilometers. Yeah, that's uh, 2,200 kilometers yeah. with chemistries that we are currently actually able to deliver commercially mm. today, but at the theoretical limit. So it's five times what we can right. do today. That's right. 2,200 kilometers of travel. Now, 2,200 kilometers, I asked the assembled uh, team from Stenator, are any of your scheduled routes that long? And they said no. Right? And so two-thirds mm. of short sea shipping is going to electrify. That only leaves the really long stuff, crossing the Atlantic, crossing the Pacific, right. the big yeah. ones. Yeah. Um, and there's two yeah. things there. One is that um, 40% of those journeys um, are, in the, are in the bulk side are bulk fossil fuels. That's all going away. Mm. We're not going to be shipping mm. lots of fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas across mm. oceans in a, in a future world because everything will be electrified. <laughs> like the mm. biggest draw for fossil fuels is electricity. Oh, renewable energy. And ground transportation. Oh, electrified ground transportation. Yeah. Right. So that goes yeah. away. Um, the another fifteen percent is raw iron ore, and that is normally steaming to the same place as um, as coal. Right. So they can make coal and blast furnaces, or make steel mm. and blast furnaces. But we've actually got solutions for that. We've got mm. Um, mm. Uh, the United States gets seventy percent of its demand for steel today from scrap. We're going to be appro mm. getting up to that level for the world over time. Um, yeah. Then the hybrid process out of Sweden is already using about 55 kilograms of green hydrogen to turn yeah. iron ore into iron and to make green steel. So we've got that solution. And the Midrex mm. solution, there's a Midrex direct reduction of iron thing, which uses a synthetic gas. Well, they can actually use biological sources of methane, like out of landfills and stuff, instead of natural gas. And they can get their heat from electricity. Mm. So it's all very solvable problems as long as we mm. price carbon. Now, aviation, right. another hard target, another projection through 2100. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, while you and I are doing this amazing podcast through technology um, and, you know, business travel took a big hit during COVID and it's not coming mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. There's people who mm -hmm. love to travel and they're Is that traveling. Right? It is, it, it, things are not coming back so far with business travel? Oh, yeah. 20... 20% of all passenger aviation was business travel and right. only about 5% of that is returned. Okay. Wow. So, you know, and mm. there was a bit of a blip for people for personal travel because people were like, Oh my God, I need to have a vacation. I need to get out of town. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah, got yeah. cabin fever. Yeah. But yeah. now, you know, we kind of like, we still got um, the COVID kind of security theater going on. And some people just say, well, you know, I, I kind of got used to not traveling and it's, kind of nice. Mm. And I found some great places. I bought a cabin up, you know, a drive up the road here and I've been spending time there. And, you know, so people have found alternatives mm. to getting in a jet to go on their vacations. So there's been a diminishment there, but it's a hard target. But right now we can do about a 300 kilometer trip in a Dash 8, like a standard turboprop, maybe a hundred passengers, 80 to a hundred passengers on yeah. the current energy density of batteries. You know, and that doesn't get us divert or reserve. So if we have to fly to a different airport or circle, that doesn't give us that. 
but we could just put a generator in there and make a hybrid thing, put bio biofuels mm -hmm. in there and we can get 300 kilometers range, you know, in, mm -hmm. um, that's with the Tesla semi scale batteries, you know, but with CATL con contemporary, contemporary, something, something, the Chinese biggest EV battery manufacturer in the world announced a battery with double the uh, energy density of Tesla this year. And Amprius out of California. Oh, I didn't know did that. the same. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So and they're targeting aviation initially. So that double, oh, that's hmm. 600 kilometers. Hmm. Interesting. And the silicon chemistry that I've been, you know, that I, the chemistry that we've been doing, Amprius has got yeah. that, 1D has got that, Chinese organizations got that. That is a theoretical energy density um, that's 10 times what Tesla's current energy density is. So you kind of go say, oh, well, that's 3,000 kilometers of potential yeah. flight just on electricity and batteries in the plane. And then, a you know, a, a, a biofuels generator for a hybrid model for divert and reserve. You know, you can kind of say, okay, well, how much aviation is over 3,000 kilometers? Mm. There is a bunch. So we're going to be burning that. But you know what? Sustainable aviation biofuels are already being certified in planes. Yep. They are much better than the second generation ones are there. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got all the biomass resources we need, as long as we electrify everything that we can electrify. Right. Right. So, so then we say, well, what about industry? What about heat for industry? That massive consumption. Well, you know, let's look at electric arc furnaces that are in electric steel mini mills that turn scrap steel into new steel. Those are 1500 degrees Celsius to 3000 degrees Celsius heat sources that run off electricity. So they can run off renewable electricity just as easily as anything else. Right. And well, then we've got, um, you got a microwave at home, Rupesh? We actually don't use Probably. a microwave, but. Yeah. Guess what? Microwaves work in industry, industrial settings as well. You can yeah. microwave stuff to create heat. Um, yeah. have you got an induction stove by any chance? We do not, no. Do not. Well, an induction stove just emits some uh, electromagnetic spectrum stuff to mm. excite um, a, a ring in the bottom of the cookware, and you can actually create heat using an induction. And you then mm. you presumably have got a resistance stove with rings that get hot. Well, that's another yeah. form of heating. And there's, you know, uh, people like um, Canfell, who I spoke to the, you know, former CTO of and current, I think he's, SVP of global business development or something a few months ago, they've got a 600 degree Celsius resistance heating component, you know, and that's before we even get to heat pumps. So I did the, I did yeah. the math for the United States. You know? So here's the math for the United States. Um, hmm. I, I looked at industrial, residential and commercial heat, and there's nothing in commercial buildings or residential heat that can't be done with a heat pump. Right. And so hmm. heat pumps good yeah. for, all of that stuff. You want hot water? Great. You want radiant heating? Great. You want yep. um, forced yep. air? Great. You want air conditioning? Great. Heat pumps will do all of that. So that, that begs the question about industrial heat. Well, 45% of industrial heat requirements are below 200 degrees Celsius. And heat pumps can do that. Modern heat pumps can do that. So that mm -hmm. leaves 55% and there's solutions for all of that. We can even do electric plasmas. Electric plasmas um, just basically create a jet or cloud of ionized plasma that sits there like a gas and will work for ceramics. Uh, so we don't actually need 
um, burnable fuels for any of that, there might there are some cases where the capital expenditure of replacing them means we use, can use biofuels for a while. But mm. in the end game, you know, pretty much everything in industry is going to be electrified because if we if we um, if we price the negative externalities of fossil fuels, we're not going to use anything burnable for energy that we can. It'll always, right. especially because we need to use electricity to make any fuels, any mm. fuels that we make to burn, to manufacture and then burn once, throwing away all the value in them, are always going to be yeah. more expensive than just using reusable ener- electricity um, in batteries for transportation and heat pumps, which get a bunch of heat from the environment. You know, So the story there is that there are going to be some places we need fuels, longer haul yeah. aviation, longer haul shipping. Mm-hmm. But that's about it. You know, old oh, rockets. <laughs> you know, right. want to go to orbit, yeah. you still need to burn yeah. stuff. We're not going to be, yeah. you know, putting yeah. electric fans on a, on a rocket ship and going to, you know, putting stuff onto, into orbit. Yeah. But yeah. that's a very, t- it's a tiny percentage of our global Small energy amount. demand is that. Yeah. yeah. So when I did the math for the United States, um, you know what primary energy is versus energy services? Did you say primary energy versus energy services? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll well, be... go ahead. Sure. Uh, so primary energy is stuff that comes into our economy in our raw form. Coal, oil, okay. gas. Um, wind energy is a primary energy source. Hydroelectricity, mm-hmm. solar is a primary energy source. And they come in and frequently we have to transform them into something useful. Like we burn mm-hmm. coal and gas to make electricity, which is more useful for a lot of things. Or we take the crude oil and we put it through a refinery and we turn it into gasoline or diesel and we put it in our trucks mm-hmm. and cars and then we mm-hmm. burn it. But what ends up happening is, A, every time we step on the energy, we lose some of it just in terms of efficiencies. Mm-hmm. But 11% of the primary energy in the world is used by the fossil fuel industry to yeah. extract, process, refine, distribute fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. But the second part, though, is as we put it in your car, what kind of car do you have, Rupesh? You have a car right uh, now? We have a Mazda 6. Yep. Mazda 6. Mazda 6. So it's a little internal combustion car, probably 1.6 liter in liter gasoline car, right? Something like that? Something like that, yeah. Ish. Ish. So that engine is about 20% efficient at turning the energy that's in gasoline into forward mm-hmm. motion, right? 80% yeah. of the energy is thrown away. Right, as heat or whatever it might be, yeah. Uh, all, almost entirely is heat um, yeah. in one way, shape, or form. It's, it's an entropy. It's just wasted energy. So the mm. energy services is that 20%. So the gasoline comes in as oil, okay. and it has a certain energy value. And then it goes through refinery, and we spend a lot of energy, two to six mm. kilowatt hours, to make a gallon of gasoline. And then you put that in your car, and you throw away 80% mm. of the stuff that's left, and that's the energy services. Now, all that transportation, that, that's dirt cheap as long as we can use the atmosphere as an open sewer, which is what we've been doing, mm-hmm. which is why we kind of have a problem we have to solve, you know, right. um, you know, is what it is. So as we look forward then, well, wind energy or solar energy through high voltage direct current transmission into your car to forward motion is potentially 85% efficient. We throw away 15% of energy as opposed to 
85 to 90 percent of energy mm. right so that's the well to wheel efficiency so yeah. as we electrify everything our actual primary energy needs shrink dramatically just Makes by sense, electrifying yeah. transportation and um, commercial residential and industrial heat um, the united states would use require 50 percent of the primary energy it uses today to achieve the same economic and comfort levels tomorrow and with vastly lower health impacts. You know, the 180 current coal plants in the United States, well, they kill about 80 people a year each right. from yeah. air pollution, yeah. right? Wind turbines just don't kill people, much as, you know, mm. certain politicians and certain political groups want to pretend they do. Right. So we kind of look forward at this and say, oh, all this coal, oil and gas is going away. We don't need nearly as much wind, water, solar as that. We need some for a few, some variable fuels for a few purposes. Biofuels are fit for purpose and any process heat we need for that, we're going to use that. Pretty much all of industry can be, elect all the industry can be, um, you know, done with electric heating mm -hmm. and electric power. So that's where the world is going, you know, which is yeah. great news because it's it's all technologies. We almost we all we have all the technologies we need. We just have to put them in place. 20, 20 minutes in, and if you just told us what's how the future is going to look by twenty one hundred, like it's you just succinctly put that all together. Your projections you said were till twenty one hundred. Is that sort of what you're seeing? Uh, yeah, I uh, I do that for a variety of reasons. One is because I'm completely yeah. and utterly arrogant. Um, um, do you ever read Super Forecaster by uh, Tetlock? No, and, no. Uh, so Super Forecaster is a great book. Um, so there's people in the world, uh, one of them apparently lives near me, I've, I've never met him, uh, who are absurdly good at predicting future events. They're better mm -hmm. than CIA analysts and intelligence analysts. And they can get out about 18 months. Mm -hmm. With every month forward, mm -hmm. quality of projections declines right that's just what it is i'm going out 80 years um i know that all i'm doing is creating a scenario which i think is credible justifiable and i are publish them i articulate the logic and which major factors i look at and i've been doing that for quite a while now and so you know people it's advantageous and as, you know when i have conversations with people i say well you know i do as i try to start at the end game I look at all the technologies extant today mm -hmm. and all the ones that are you know as many as possible and I do the assessment based upon the basics of science the basics of economics and the basics of cognitive science what human beings will mm. actually accept yeah yeah right will it work technically will it be economically viable and will human beings actually use it yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. If it doesn't meet those criteria, it's yeah. not going to be a solution. And so then I say, okay, well, that's the bag of end game solutions in rough order. I'm going to go out to the time when the, the world is pretty much going to be all that. And then I come mm. back decade by decade to say, what's it going to look like at mm. different points in the cycle? Right. I kind of hunt back and forth to say, that's a bit aggressive. And then people tell me I'm a complete idiot about some things and I adjust things. It's a very Bayesian process. I kind of come up with a guess and people say, Mike, here's why you're really wrong on that point. I'm like, okay, well, that's good enough. And I move it a bit or I say, no, I think you're wrong. 
which happens. The point is, though, that the, it is absurd to project out to 2100 when the rest of the world is focused on 2050 at best, and most people right. are focused on the next two years. <laughs> so, 100%. Um, yeah. Uh, so the value proposition I try to bring to my clients and to people um, is to elevate them up from the you know the next quarterly profit margin, the yearly targets, the two-year strategic long-range plan mm -hmm. to kind of say what will twenty thirty-five and twenty forty and twenty fifty look like mm -hmm. in a realistic scenario that it takes into account a lot of stuff, so that they can say, oh, is what I'm doing now remotely aligned with that. Mm -hmm. If it isn't, then am I spending my time, money, and resources effectively? And so clients and investment firms engage me to assist them with some of that thinking. It's like Because I've, I've done that, a whole bunch of that work. So if they yeah. ask me some types of questions, um, I can answer them better than many other people can. Right. Um, and, and a lot of people disagree with me, of course. Like uh, everybody who deals with hydrogen for energy um, many of them know my name. Many of them think I'm a complete raving idiot. Um, you know, I, that's just the nature of the beast because hydrogen for energy doesn't have a play in our future. It doesn't make a lot of sense. They'll supplement some biofuels, but that's about it. It's just too expensive. Interesting. Um, I yeah. want, I do want to talk, I do want to talk about hydrogen for sure. I, I, I want to talk about each of one of those sectors in more depth. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, when, when you, when you talk about your process though, I'm curious about like, you know, more recently, um, at least here in Alberta, uh, the peak oil demand forecasts have been kind of a hot topic over the last few weeks. Um, the premier was at the World Oil Congress or whatever forum or whatever in Calgary, yeah. and uh, I think it was the one of the the big Saudi oil producers that said that yeah, these forecasts by the IEA or or some of the other ones are saying peak oil demand will be 2030 or that it's already happened or nonsense. He thinks it's going to be more 2040, 2050, somewhere around there. Premier kind of agrees with that. How do you how do you take into account the different forecasts and sort of what's your what's your thought I guess on on what you're hearing from that? Sure. Uh, so Equinor, the IEA, and McKinsey all have forecasts mm -hmm. in this decade. Um, so you know, and I, I agree with those forecasts. Mm -hmm. Peak oil demand is coming. So here's an, here's a data point out of China. So China happens to be the biggest energy consumer in the world. Mm -hmm because they manufacture all the stuff for us, right? right. And they've got 1.4 billion people of their own that yeah. they put, yeah. provide stuff to. So yeah. they're the, just the biggest energy consumer in the world. Um, Sinopec is their national oil firm. Like uh, mm -hmm. Suncor got, ended up with uh, whatever that firm was, the Canadian firm that predated that, right? Right, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Petro-Canada, yeah. you know, they yeah. got all that. Um, and, you know, so that's uh, the same as... Um, Gazprom in, in Russia. It's the biggest oil firm. State-owned kind of, or state-supported yeah, kind like of firm or whatever. Pet, yeah. Yeah, it's like um, Petrobras in uh, Brazil. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, you yeah. know, it's huge. Um, so Sinopec recently announced that peak, um, peak crude oil and gasoline and diesel demand for China was this year. Hmm. So where China goes from an energy demand perspective is where the world is going. So, so let China. me ask you about that though. Like that, that, that I think makes that logically makes sense. But 
what what I'm hearing though is there's like you know India is still consuming a lot of fossil fuels. Like everyone's kind of courting India nowadays. Their their population mm-hmm. continues to grow. China's also like they're putting up a lot of coal plants, and I know I know a totally different energy source mm-hmm. and for different uses or whatever. And I, yeah. I understand from like very worth very worth right? asking about. Yeah. Um. So 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 fair fair point. But I, but I do wonder about like okay if most of the developed Western world is shifting to cleaner sources but what about you know the rest of the world are they are they going to shift mm-hmm. in, in the same stride or are they going to be delayed and still consuming a ton of oil yeah it, it's a really good question um and what i've done is in my projections looked at because i've lived globally worked globally and my my patch is global this is part of my arrogance is i want to know everything everywhere all at once mm. uh, the movie finally came out that you know dealt with my my life story um except for the fanny pack um and so I've looked at all these questions, and they're good questions. They're the right questions to ask. So let's take China's coal. Um, so China is uh, shuttering about five gigawatts of coal capacity and building more coal capacity. But the mm-hmm. coal capacity plans are – there's two things. There's how much potential energy they could generate versus how much they're actually burning coal. And they're mm. – um, China's – um, you know what a capacity factor is for a, a, a generation electrical generation plant? Like you mean the the amount of uh, electricity they're able to produce in terms of their capacity? No, no. Or? So there's the the factor. So there's capacity, which is like you know, you go to like um, a, a nuclear plant. It's one gigawatt. That's yeah. its capacity. It's nameplate yeah. capacity. Yeah. At any given point, yeah. it can generate a gigawatt of uh, of energy of power. And if it goes for an hour, it goes for 24 hours, goes for 365 days, the percentage of its potential maximum generation over a year that it actually generates is its capacity factor. Mm. And so okay. nuclear fleets need to run at about 90% capacity factors. They mm. need to be you know, over a five-year period on average um, yep. to be able to pay for their capital expenditures of building Otherwise, mm. it's just really expensive. They have to be at that level. Yeah. Um, and coal plants like to be higher capacity factor for a variety of reasons. Gas plants, everybody wants to be higher capacity factors. Wind is averaging over 40%. Solar is averaging around 25% right mm-hmm. now because the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time. Yeah. Big surprise. Yeah. Uh, but coal plants, let's start with the United States. They had about 500 coal plants in 2000. Now they have about 160, 180. Um, and their coal plants during um, uh, two years ago were running at 30, I think 40% capacity factor. They used to be running, even not too long ago, at 60% capacity factors. Mm. They used to be running at 80 or 90%. So the nameplate capacity is only part of the story. That's how much power they could generate, but how much energy do they mm. actually generate over the year? And so right now, the United States has bumped back up their coal generation capacity factors have bumped up a bit. They're at about 50% last year, but that's going to decline pretty rapidly. I mean, basically we're stopping burning coal over time. We're doing that in Alberta for, you know, both the not the government's reasons and the federal um, carbon price, both combined to shut down coal by the end of this year. So yay Alberta from that Mm -hmm. perspective. Um, But China, yeah, it's building new coal plants, but their capacity factor is dropping. It's under 50% now. So that's kind of statement one. Mm. They've got all this coal capacity. Oh, but it's 
not being used nearly as much as you think. Second thing is they're actually getting rid of a lot of old crappy plants and putting in new technology plants. So clean coal, supercritical coal that's with high quality pulverized coal that's put through very blah, 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 blah. It, it still sucks, but it doesn't mm-hmm. suck as badly as mm-hmm. the old coal plants. They're, you know, basically all, all coal is, is carbon rich dirt. And you can yeah. burn carbon-rich dirt, and you can get lots and lots of CO2 off of it, or you can get about 60% of the CO2 off of it. So all the new stuff China's putting in, it's running at 50% capacity factors, you know, half the time. And it's only 6 out of 10 on the CO2 emission scale for um, stuff. So it's about, a, in that perspective, it's not much worse than natural gas, right? So yeah. natural gas has got the upstream methane emissions problem. And it's actually turned mm-hmm. out to be much worse than we thought. You know, that's just the nature of the beast, especially for fracked natural gas. That stuff leaks like a sieve. Um, mm. You know, and most natural gas in the world is not done in Norway. are really good at not having upstream methane emissions. Most of it's done worse than the United States does it, which is pretty crappy. So the mm. coal plants are better. They're shutting down the really the worst ones. They're not using them nearly as much. And per their latest analysis, from people who actually um, speak and read Mandarin are based in China and are energy observers. I was just interacting with one through LinkedIn yesterday and we were looking at his report and his FAQ and we're debating mm. some of these points. Um, the projected coal expansion is likely to only see about 50% of those plants actually be built. So these claims of massive numbers of mm. new coal plants, they start with the assumption that the capacity means they're going to burn that much coal. Mm. And then the second is they they believe that an announced set of plans are actually going to do it. But nobody wants to build new coal plants if they can't make money off them. And they can't make money off them at 40%, 30% capacity factors. So, hmm. And meanwhile, China is building as much wind, solar, hydro, transmission, and storage or more than the rest of the world combined every single year. Last year, yeah. they put in place more offshore yeah. wind than the rest of the world did in the preceding five years. They have something like 60 Mm. gigawatts of capacity of rooftop solar, which is more than virtually any other country in the world has of solar in total. And that's just rooftop. Their utility farms Mm -hmm. are off the scale, right? They opened um, not only the um, Three Gorges Dam, which is the biggest dam in the world by one measure. So massive. Massive. But they actually opened up a bunch more dams in the past 15 years. Right, they're and they're building a lot more nuclear. They're building about an average of about three nuclear plants a year. They're turning them on right now. Um, and that's I was going to ask about the nuclear. Like, why aren't they doing more nuclear? Well, um, they peaked in 2016 and 2018 with seven plants going live in each of those years, and then they flatlined. They're able to turn on three plants a mm-hmm. year successfully. Um, they've got plans to build more, but their win their nuclear program significantly under met targets, while their wind and solar targets plans significantly exceeded targets. And kind of, they're a rational organization. They're Mm. a rational country for the most part. They're irrational in different ways than we are, so I'll put it. Um, But they deal with empirical reality and they say, oh, well, that stuff doesn't work as well as this stuff based upon all the numbers. Let's do more of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So they're going to do more of wind, water, and solar. Right? You know, that's just the nature of the beast. So, 
Anyway, um, so yes. coal, so that was China. Um, China is going to see yeah. peak coal demand and burning probably before 2025. It's building so much renewables mm. and every, every megawatt hour of renewable, new, renewably or nuclear generated electricity eliminates a megawatt hour of coal generated electricity. And they're electrifying yeah. faster than anybody, any other country in the world. I mean, 40,000 kilometers of high speed electrified freight and passenger rail. They've yeah. got about 600,000 electric buses on their roads. They've got about 500,000 electric trucks on their roads. They build and buy 60% of the world's light electric vehicles. And of course, if you go to any of the cities, they'll have electrified subways um, and everybody rides electric scooters, electric bikes, or electric skateboards, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. the, this, the country has radically decarbonized transportation, which is the major one. They're working on energy with electricity. Um, they're working on transportation as well, because that marine shipping example I gave was there. So they're going to get to this point where their mm -hmm. demand collapses. Um, India, different question. So India um, based, so China based its economic development on, um, after about 1980, on uh, industrialization. India based mm -hmm. its economic development based upon a services organization. Now, part of my background is that I had, uh, you know, a couple of decades with a global technology firm um, who outsourced all sorts of stuff to India. So we, you know, they had IT people, high value services, they had call centers, low value services, whole bunch of stuff like that. They outsourced a whole bunch of stuff like that because they had a yeah. billion people and they didn't have much industry. So they, um, they have just in the past year um, gotten to the point when I did my global steel forecast the UK and the United States used to be the number one and number two for manufacturing steel. Then they flipped and it was, and then China and India were coming up from the bottom. Now China's at number one for manufacturing steel and India's at number two, except that when we say number one and number two, hmm. China manufactures as much steel as the rest of the planet combined and 10 times as much as India. Their GDP has okay. seen a similar reaction. Their GDP used to kind of go like this through time. And then after 1980, with China's economic reforms, mm -hmm. it went like this. India's did increase, um, but they didn't increase in the same way. And so then we go back to the India example of electrification of their rail system. They're uh, very rail-oriented, um, uh, very, very mm -hmm. rail-oriented country. And they're electrifying all their rail. That's their industrial mm. strategy. So they're getting it. They're, they're actually have can do reactors running in India, believe it or not. They're planning to build some more, bizarrely. Yeah. Who believe that more <laughs> can do reactors will be built? And they're, um, right. doing a whole bunch of other stuff to decarbonize their economy as well. Now get to Indonesia, which has different problems. It's a, you know, got a lot of natural uh, fossil fuel reserves and wants to, to grow. Yeah. Um, but it's only about 300, 300 million uh, people. And, you know, there's, it's mm -hmm. now getting into um, situation. It, Malaysia are starting to realize that they have all this land mass that can be used for wind and solar and water and pumped hydro storage. And that there are big demand yeah. centers like Singapore that they could be supplying. And so now they're starting to build a 
ASEAN, Association of Southeastern Asian Nations, I think is what ASEAN stands for, mm -hmm. an ASEAN high-voltage direct current supergrid. It's starting with pumped hydro assets and hydro assets and wind assets and solar assets, and the country grouping is starting to um, treat itself as a region like the EU in terms of an electricity grid, right? And which is the way you have to think about these things. Mm. So Indonesia is yeah. part of that. Um, they're going to be linked to Australia as well with HVDC for to share electricity with Australia. I mean, Indonesia, part of Indonesia's problems is what do they have? 16,000 islands in the archipelago. Um, and something like 600 of them have people on. Um, it's much worse than the UK. UK has got like 400 <laughs> islands. Like Indonesia is a whole new scale of archipelago. And I, I've been there, I've, you know, mm. paraglided the southern cliffs of Bali. Um, you know, it's mm. amazing place. Um, so the rest of the world, um, a, a big part of our problem right now is we have kind of three tiers. We have, um, you know, and China developed this language, so I'm going to just go with this language uh, because it's not... Um, it's not um, pejorative to any group. There's the first world, second world, third world, mm. right? Um, those mm. actually languages that China said, well, we should probably talk about this. There's the developed nations, the developing nations, and the impoverished nations, right? Regardless of mm -hmm. anything else about them, that's a reasonable thing. So the impoverished nations we have to bring forward into a modern economy. It doesn't mean we have to bring them to a fossil economy. Um, the developing mm. nations is China and a bunch of tiny things by comparison, right? So China is still by a bunch of metrics, still a developing nation. Its GDP per capita yeah. is still not nearly at the levels of Canada or the United States or mm. Australia or Denmark. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's going to see that eventually, but, you know, then there's the rest of them. The Indonesia and India are going to have a slower industrialization and growth pattern than China did. Um, they have a, a different set of levers they can use. Mm. And China's um, uh, massive infrastructure build-out is coming to an end. Uh, so one of the things that's uh, drawing, pull, pushing down coal use is this year is that they've kind of come to the end of building buildings and infrastructure. So cement demand has plummeted. And cement is a big mm. user of coal for heat to bake limestone into quicklime, a big source of emissions. So the entire cement industry is collapsing in China more than the rest of the world's cement industry is growing. The steel industry in China is shrinking more than the rest of the world's is growing. China will be able to do much more reuse of steel over the next decades, you know, and, and the compare to, but to compare and contrast, then we ask that, ask the next question, well, what about China's Belt and Road Initiative? What are they building in that? Mm -hmm. And they're still building a lot of fossil fuel plants. China has committed to not build, not approve any more coal plants. But I didn't, yeah. I did an analysis of all their Belt and Road Initiative projects. And you know what? The majority of energy projects in the Belt and Road Initiative are still fossil fuel plants. So it's imperfect. But the developed world is going to decarbonize fairly rapidly. China will decarbonize absurdly rapidly. Um, for, you know, it just won't be building as much 
manufacturing as much steel or iron and all of its transportation will be electrified and they'll have massive amounts of renewables and grid storage because it's building more grid storage than any other country in the world by a long shot as well. Uh, mostly in the form of pumped hydro. Thank you very much. You know, so mm. the curves are positive. Um, but yeah, there's some challenges about other geographies and how they develop and what we do about that. Right. So as we move forward, there's going to be, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what the big lever I'm very pleased about right now is. Um, yeah, please. Uh, so the EU uh, has, European Union, has the most stringent carbon price in the world right now. It's about uh, 90 um, euros, which is about, oh my God, what does 90 euros turn into uh, right now? 90 euros to CAD. That's about 130 Canadian dollars. Right. So mm -hmm. our carbon price is $65 right now, Canadian. So the, mm -hmm. um, so the EU's carbon price is double ours. And, mm -hmm. uh, there's kind of two data points there. One is, um, our carbon price does include methane. Thank you very much. The EU's will in 2026. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're including more mm -hmm. gases and they're including more things in their carbon price, just as we are over time. Theirs is going up. Um, their projection is that by 2030, People should be budgeting for two hundred and three dollars U.S. Uh, I just did the math on this recently. Uh, USD to CAD. It's about two hundred and seventy-five Canadian dollars. So the EU is telling people when you do your budgetary projections, budget two hundred and seventy-five dollars mm. Canadian per ton for any mm. CO two you um, or methane equivalent that you emit in twenty thirty. Uh, and that in Canada, we're supposed to be 130 Canadian, less than half mm -hmm. of that, mm -hmm. right? Um, our social cost of yeah. carbon is very much aligned with the EU's projections on this demand stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the um, uh, current government has already, you know, uh, increased the cap once. If it wins the next election, which hopefully it will, it'll probably do that again. Certainly, the majority of Canadians are in favor of that, you know, despite the attempts by people to say no. And so the reason this becomes important is the EU is also, in 2026, pricing carbon that crosses its borders. Carbon border mm -hmm. adjustment mechanism that comes into play fiscally um, in 2026 means if there's a, a ton of oil that's manufactured in Alberta that has, for example, um, Three ton, uh, two tons of CO2 attached to it. Well, that ton of oil is going to be costed for the two tons of CO2 at $275 per ton. So $550. Mm -hmm. you know, that carbon price starts to make a difference on anything that enters the EU. Mm -hmm. So LNG exports to Europe, the upstream methane and methane emissions in Canada, we start, if we start uh, emitting, will be priced at those price points in the future. You know, and that goes up mm. from there. It goes up to, um, let me just do the math here, 300 euros to CAD is $430 Canadian per ton in 2050, Jeez. right? So yeah. now yeah. the EU is the third largest economic bloc in the world. It's, you know, it's like United States, China, EU. If you add the mm. UK and Turkey to the EU, why not? It's actually bigger than China still. 
right? People mm-hmm. keep talking about a country rating, but the EU operates as an economic unit as a country. We should yeah. be thinking of it that way as a regional entity, not thinking of Germany, France and stuff for the, these purposes. The carbon border adjustment mechanism applies to all the countries that are in the EU. And so the third biggest economy mm-hmm. in the world is pricing carbon at those very high rates. That's what they're managing their exchange, their emissions trading scheme to. And so that means anything that comes out of a high carbon economy, like Canada's, that goes into the EU as an export today, is going to be economically disadvantaged. Hmm. So China, so countries that actually have a carbon emission scheme, like Canada, like California, um, like mm-hmm. China, if they actually price carbon, they get to deduct the price of carbon from the amount they have to give the EU. The idea, this was going to drive up carbon prices in every major trading economy in the world, and it's being led by the EU. Um, and it, by the way, means that anybody who expects to send high carbon stuff to the EU is out of luck. Sure. I, you know, that's a, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. Like, um, the benefits of our carbon price, you know, for also our exports, you know, particularly going to, to Europe, right? Like, I don't know if many people have thought about that aspect of it. So that, that's really interesting. I want to focus on Canada though, now, since we're kind of diving into this a little bit more, like the, the scenarios that you're projecting don't sound all that great for Canada. If you think about some of our, our, our major focuses right now from an energy standpoint. So, you know, going through your neighborhood there in Vancouver is TMX, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea is that uh, the United, we don't want the United States to be our sole buyer and user of our products. So let's, let's go to Asia. But you just painted a really pretty clear scenario where China might not be using this oil anymore. Um, so, so, and I know I've read your articles about TMX, but maybe tell listeners and our viewers like your thoughts about that there isn't really a high value proposition for TMX perhaps. Sure. Um, so let's start with the basics. Um, Alberta's oil products are heavy and sour. Um, what that means is they're a tar-like substance. You have to uh, mix them with dilbit, which is kind of like lighter um, mm-hmm. uh, fossil derivatives, in order to actually pump them anywhere or to put them in tanks or anything like that. So they're heavy. Um, and heavy means they're expensive to uh, uh, distribute and they're expensive to refine. Sour means they're high in sulfur, um, up to 5%, you know, uh, mm. sulfur. And sulfur, we have to remove because we can't, it, it causes acid rain and it, you know, kills people's lungs and makes our kids sick. And so, um, what mm. we do is we refine the sulfur out of sour oil. And that's mostly done. The, the bigger oil refineries that do that are mostly in Texas and the Houston uh, neighborhood. Uh, and there's a couple in California, and there's some scattered through the United States that can take a little bit of it, right? And so Alberta's yeah. product right now goes to the United States to those refineries, um, and it doesn't go anywhere else. Uh, oil exports to China collapsed from 2010 onwards, or like 10% or 5% of exports. Um, mm-hmm. So there are two regions in the world that make a lot of heavy, sour oil, and that's Alberta and Venezuela. Um, now, it's very, very simple. Um, the cost of desulfurizing oil and cracking it down into lighter, more higher value distillates and treating it for other impurities is 
almost entirely related to the cost of hydrogen. Um, hydrogen is used for hydro-treating, hydro-cracking, and desulfurization in these oil refineries today. And right now, that, mm. that uh, hydrogen comes from um, fossil fuels, of course. Right? right. Very simple. From natural gas. And it, that's yeah. not blue hydrogen. That's not low-carbon hydrogen. That's very high-carbon hydrogen. Mm. Right? And so you kind of sit there and go, oh, well, how much hydrogen do we need? Well, it's a lot. And right now, um, as of two years ago, there was a $21 U.S. discount on a Canadian barrel of uh, crude oil. $7 of that was transportation. Uh, $14 of that was the cost of the quality discount because it's sour and heavy. Right? And so mm -hmm. that $14 is going to increase substantially as we decarbonize hydrogen whether it's blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, white hydrogen, any hydrogen, all hydrogen is going to be more expensive than hydrogen where we get to treat turn fossil fuels into hydrogen and atmospheric pollution. As long as we're not allowed to do that atmospheric pollution with any price. So if we do take natural gas as an example and make hydrogen from it, it takes it produces about eight times as much mass of CO2 as it does of hydrogen. So every ton of hydrogen comes with eight tons of CO2. You remember those price points I was talking mm -hmm. about, right? That's going to start adding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 475 Canadian per ton of uh, CO2. Oh, 1500 bucks more on the price of a ton of hydrogen. The price just goes up and it's expensive to distribute. It's expensive to store. So I did the calculation and basically Canada's product starts getting priced out of the market. If we have a glut of sweet, light, crude close to water in a peak oil demand scenario, the question becomes what products actually stay on the market? The ones that are expensive to distribute um, and expensive to refine will be off the market first. That means Alberta's mm -hmm. product that makes sense. Yep. will be off. Yep. Yeah, it, this is just basic economics. Remember I said basics of science, basics of economics, basics of what humans will accept. Yep. This is a basics of economics thing. The stuff that's expensive to use, if we've got a lot of stuff that's cheap to use, we'll use the cheap stuff. So, you know, uh, I like a bunch of Albertans. I've got a bunch of friends and family there. But that's irrelevant to the economic reality that's coming, is that peak oil turns into Alberta's product being some of the first off the market. Now, the Trans Mountain is mm -hmm. currently at... $33 billion expense. Mm -hmm. The price for transportation mm -hmm. through there was already at $750 per barrel, presumably nine now. That means the transportation discount is going up, not down through the TMX, right? And so the quality discount mm -hmm. price is going up. The transportation discount price is going up. The cost that a, and the price per barrel on the global market is flattening. Because peak demand means that, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia, which have lots of light oil that's you know, closer to water, are going to pump as much as they're allowed to, Saudi Arabia especially, right? They're going to, mm. you know, they, and they'll, Canada is going to be out of the game. It's like, a, you know, in the United States, what, mm. what will happen for Alberta is that everybody in Alberta will be clamoring for a national energy program demanding domestic um, uh, use of only Alberta's product. Um, I don't know why a national energy program came to mind. It's just, it seems like the right 
um, term somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, and so the Trans Mountain Pipeline, it's tripling capacity of the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline. It's like one, effectively one pipe to three pipes. Um, yeah. It's like 850,000 barrels a day or something like that. My projection mm -hmm. is and it'll mm -hmm. get to be about half full, maybe by 2035, and it'll be bankrupt in 2040. You know, the TMX is a pipeline to nowhere. Um, if China's seeing peak oil demand today and is buying no Canadian oil today, there is no reason for them to build a heavy oil refining facility tomorrow to buy Canadian oil. So the TMX, it, yep, that makes sense. It'll go. It'll go into small, uh, third size. Uh, I think it's Aframax um, tankers are all that can fit into the Burrard Inlet where the TMX terminates. And that's a third mm -hmm. of the size of, that's the other thing, right? This is the third of the size of the ultra large crude carriers that are taking oil from Saudi Arabia to China. And a third the size means a mm -hmm. higher mm -hmm. cost of trans, of transportation per barrel again, right? And so you kind of like look, it's just a stack of economic inhibitors on Canada's product. Yeah. So we're, we're yeah. going to have a domestic, um, we're going to have a domestic mandated fossil fuel program that will be eking out 5% of uh, Alberta's stuff. They already provide um, pretty much all the uh, uh, gasoline and diesel in Western Canada. Mm -hmm. we, we import gasoline and diesel from other places for Eastern Canada. That's going to be changed so that we won't be able to import fossil fuels to give them some money. Uh, but they're, it's collapsing, mm -hmm. right? I, I look out, I go outside here in, in Vancouver, which has admittedly got the highest percentage of um, electric cars in any small region in North America. But mm -hmm. I, I typically mm -hmm. see two to three at once, not two to three while on a, a hour long walk. Right. I see two to three in front of my eyes at the same time. You know, mm -hmm. it's just going. Um, yeah. So that, that that's the reality. Uh, Canadian Canada's um, fossil fuel consumption or uh, petroleum consumption will collapse. Um, our, we're going to be putting in heat pumps everywhere. So our natural gas con consumption will collapse. Uh, mm -hmm. the fossil fuel majors will, um, the, the various lobbyists will enforce domestic consumption of our product. We'll stop importing fine, whatever. Um, every country is going to do that. United States is going to do that right now. They are the biggest um, exporter of crude oil in the world, believe it or not. And well, they're not going to mm -hmm. be in 20 years because yeah. anybody, anybody that has it is going to use their own. Anyway, um, yeah, Alberta's um, an interesting place. Uh, they already have the highest uh, um, highest vacancy rate for office buildings. They had 19 empty office buildings last time I checked. Mm. They have something like 10 office buildings are trying to convert to residential stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, Calgary, yeah, Calgary. Also, yep. yeah, Calgary's also got a really weird real estate market, which still they still have this illusion that oil's mm -hmm. coming back. The, the, I mean, the property values have been in decline since 2015, residential property values. They're never coming back. You know, it's becoming a... Well, interestingly, interestingly, I think that this past year, because of, I don't know if you heard recently, there's like, there were over 180,000 folks who who migrated to Alberta and prices in Calgary actually is starting to creep up. The rental market is pretty hot. It's, mm -hmm. I don't know that might, I don't know if that's a long-term thing, but, but at least over the last little bit, it's been, it's been kind of bumping up. Well, so. I, I don't know what they're going to do for a living. 
Um, you know, I, I, I've been in yeah. uh, the okay. subways in Toronto and Vancouver and seen the ads where Calgary saying, mm. your commute is really short. Mm. Uh, mm. It's the jobs that don't exist in Calgary. So uh, I know that there, mm. um, people are establishing branch offices in Calgary and putting non-executive offices in Calgary. So they no longer have head offices. Calgary used to be headquarters central for, you know, like there's uh, Toronto and then Calgary for headquarters for corporations. Now mm. it's branch offices, it's IT shops, it's secondary stuff. Mm. It's like Alabama. Mm. I mean, Alabama and Missouri have a lot of call centers mm. because they have dirt cheap real estate. So is that the basis of an economic rebound or is that a desperation play on Calgary's part? I, I call it a desperation play. Um, you know, they're, they've got lemonade, mm. they've got lemons, they're making lemonade. Hmm. When you think about Alberta's energy future, so I mean, now there's a lot of focus on hydrogen. You kind of talked about how you don't see hydrogen really being uh, a, a, pr a dominant fuel. Tell, tell a little bit, you, you kind of, you, you kind of in different ways talked about why that's the case. But if you, I guess if you're succinctly to put it, do you think there's a case for, or need for Alberta to focus on hydrogen? Cause really that's what everyone's kind of, I mean, they're ta obviously talking about critical uh, mineral mining and stuff like that, lithium and that sort of thing. But really there's a huge push even from this conservative government on, on wanting to focus on hydrogen, but it doesn't sound like from your end, like that's sort of a, a saving, saving fuel or a saving grace maybe. Uh, no, it's, it's a pipe dream. Um, so uh, hydrogen, we, so let's talk mm. about hydrogen. We make and use about 120 okay. million tons of it a year right now. Uh, about 40 million tons of a third is used in oil refineries. About 40 million tons is mostly going away. Mm -hmm. um, we need it more, much more for heavy sour oil than we do for light oil. And so the demand for hydrogen from the refinery sector, the single biggest demand area today is going to be diminishing radically over the next 30 years. Um, the next biggest after that, about 25% demand is for uh, ammonia-based fertilizers. Well, ammonia-based fertilizers are subject to agrogenetics of nitrogen fixing microbes. They're subject to um, uh, carbon pricing because making, making ammonia with Hydrogen is, makes the ammonia much more expensive, so there's a downward pressure on demand. They're subject to um, precision agriculture. Right now, um, you can actually uh, talk to the founders of uh, companies which make drone spraying devices. They can take up to 200 gallons or 200 pounds of product in a 14-foot diameter uh, hexacopter and spray a field with much greater precision than a crop spraying helicopter, airplane, or, or tractor can um, with no soil compaction, and they run off electricity. Um, and so mm -hmm. they also use about half of the product because the, the prop wash blows the product down among the plants instead of any of it drifting off or being wasted. And so it's a much more efficient use of uh, pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, and the treatments of fertilizer outside of the big one. So we're seeing a drop. My projection mm -hmm. is those things plus a removal of more subsistence farmers from the land into more productive work instead of being calorie stripping, impoverished, deeply impoverished people. They'll be doing something economically more productive somewhere else. 
um, the amount of fertilizer we'll consume will actually diminish. Um, you know, and to be clear, this isn't unusual. Our GDP globally, our food consumption globally, and our population globally has gone mm -hmm. up massively since 1960. Mm -hmm. But our ammonia-based fertilizer has only gone up by 4 or 5% a year. It's gone up much less than all those other indicators. And so now we're going to point um, from a projection of um, the projections of demographics. Um, the most credible one is about 2070 for peak population, but a very credible one is now 2050 for peak global population. Hmm. So the global population will not be increasing demand for uh, fertilizer. And right now we already waste a full third of the food that we manufacture. 2.5 billion tons a year hmm. ends up rotting. Yeah. So we're going to make be more efficient in a bunch of these things, especially because the methane in the rotting food, as it you know, as it rots, some of it turns into CO two, a bunch of it turns into methane, mm -hmm. and both of those are going to be priced with a carbon price. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. hmm, well, let's waste less. Let's what do we can we do with this thing instead of creating atmospheric problems? So, the first a, a full third of hydrogen demand diminishes. Another 25%, uh, you know, almost goes away. Another 25% diminishes, not, mm -hmm. not to zero, uh, you know, but it's going to yeah. diminish. Yeah. So then there's a bunch of other stuff. Uh, there's going to be demand increase for um, making steel, like making green steel with direct reduction using the hybrid process, about 55 kilos per ton of steel. My de demand projections say we're going to need 30 million tons of, of hydrogen for that. But... Mm -hmm. None of that, even at that, my demand projection for hydrogen in 2100 is lower than it is today. We're not going to be using it for energy because let's think about the place. Remember at the beginning, we talked about electrification of everything. I said, if yep. the price of carbon, if carbon is priced, any place we can use electricity, we will. I went through all the transportation modes and all the heat modes and said electrification works except for the extremes of aviation and marine shipping. And marine shipping is going to diminish, mm -hmm. right? So that doesn't, that means all the fossil fuels we use today that people want to replace with hydrogen are just going to use electricity instead. There isn't a big demand increase, right? And mm -hmm. hydrogen will always be more expensive than just using electricity. Let's just take a really basic example. Um, mm -hmm. Let's take um, a hydrogen fuel cell car. Let's make green hydrogen for it, or yeah. let's just put the electricity in batteries. And the battery energy densities are going to be just fine, mm. right? And light vehicles, by the way, mm. are the biggest consumer of oil products globally, right? Light vehicles, mm -hmm. that's the biggest one. And so if we look at that and we say, oh, okay, well, um, let's take that and say, I'm going to make put electricity into batteries, Wind to batteries, 85% forward. Or I'm going to turn that electricity into hydrogen first. Well, I can turn that into hydrogen with maybe 70% efficiency and lose another 10% for storage and distribution. Mm -hmm. And then I can use mm -hmm. a fuel cell yeah. and I get about 60% of the power to the hydrogen to the wheels. So that means I'm using about three times as much electricity to power the car in the best possible case scenario than just using electricity directly, which means that hydrogen mm -hmm. is always going to be three times as expensive 
as just using electricity directly. For blue hydrogen, which is the great hope of the fossil fuel industry, it's just going to be more expensive. Yeah. Right? So that's kind of thing one. Um, there is no path for transportation where hydrogen makes sense. Blue hydrogen is takes 25 to 30% additional energy and cost to capture the CO2 and to put it underground. And hydrogen has an indirect global warming potential of about 11 times CO2. So every ton of hydrogen that leaks is like 11 tons of CO2. So that's going to be priced, right? So it's just, and, and hydrogen wants to leak. Mm-hmm. So then we take an industrial heat. Um, when we have all these electrification things, same story is in place. Electricity is highly efficient for heating. Heat pumps are three times as efficient for heating. Let's just take residential heat, which is something mm-hmm. that a bunch of people keep trying to say, we're going to use hydrogen for residential heat instead of natural gas. I was just going to ask you that question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great minds seldom differ, or fools think alike. One of those two phrases. Um, <laughs> but let's take, because heat pumps, air source heat pumps, just basic ones, get about two units of energy from the air, or get three units of the energy from the air with one unit of energy from hydrogen. So it's three times as efficient. But if you, that's, so if you use electricity in a heat pump, you get three units of heat. If you put electricity into hydrogen, you get three, you have to get, you get one unit of electricity turns into a third unit of heat. It's six times as efficient to use a heat pump as to use hydrogen for anything where a heat pump makes sense. It means you have to build six times as many wind farms, solar farms, six times as much transmission, six times as much storage, and it's going to cost six times as much. No one's going to do that, mm-hmm. right? And there's now 40 studies. Jan Rousnow, out of the uh, out of Europe, keeps track and he has a list. There's now 40 studies which said it makes no sense to use hydrogen for heat where a heat pump works. Um, and so you know, kind of, oh well, okay, well, so uh, heating. What about um, instead of natural gas and electrical generation? Well, the same story applies. So liquid natural gas right now, which is a great hope, right? We're going to liquefy. Um, we're going to liquefy hydrogen and put it in something like a liquid natural gas tanker. We're going to ship it across the oceans, and that will be the energy economy of the future. Mm-hmm. Except the liquid natural gas is already the most expensive form of energy that any economy uses. It's only used as an energy source of last resource, resort. Um, the mm-hmm. only reason there was a blip on the market and uh, is because... The uh, Ukraine invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the shutdown of Nord Stream 1 and 2, the explosion by Russia, the sabotage mm-hmm. of their own assets, um, means that there was an energy crisis in Europe, so they bought a bunch of LNG. But that's temporary. They're also building a lot of renewables and a lot of storage. Um, and they're extending HVDC in all directions to increase the expanse. So LNG is already the most expensive. The best case scenario is that liquid hydrogen, if imported in similar ways, or or hydrogen through pipelines, would be five times as expensive per unit of energy as LNG, and typically 10 times as expensive. So any economy which tries to use liquid hydrogen or hydrogen imports as the basis of its economy will be vastly more expensive 
then economies was just electrifying. And so global mm -hmm. economic, once again, basics of economics. If one of your inputs is five to 10 times more for the same output as another person, your product is going to be more expensive and you're going to lose market share. Any economy which attempts mm -hmm. to use hydrogen as the basis of its energy will be five to 10 times as expensive as economies that don't and therefore will lose markets and their economies will collapse and they won't be able to afford the hydrogen imports. So the concept, the belief, um, but there's a really good reason why in Alberta and other oil producing factories, they think hydrogen is going to be the thing. It's the same reason, reasoning for the complete and utter delusion that peak oil demand isn't coming. When Sinopec says it's here, right? So the hydrogen uh, thing yeah. is very simple. We can't make enough electricity to make all the hydrogen for the energy, for that primary energy that we need. Oh, we only need half the primary energy. Oh, well, but we, we still need to make that much energy. Well, no, except that uh, hydrogen actually makes, means we still need that much primary energy because it's so inefficient. Okay, well, but we've got all these hydrocarbons underground. Unless the hydro part of the hydrocarbon is the basis of the energy economy of the future, our hydrocarbon reserves are worth zero. Mm. All of our um, debt financing and investment financing is strongly based upon our uh, uh, recoverable reserves, our proven reserves. Well, if those proven reserves aren't worth anything because the hydro and the hydrocarbon isn't worth anything, then the entire, yeah. all the companies and all the economies which base their um, their GDP and revenue and all that stuff on their hydrocarbon reserves, all of a sudden mm -hmm. have no economic future. And the next piece, everybody that um, the bankers, which would provide them all the debt based upon their asset, oh, the asset's worth nothing. How do we recover the debt? Mm. Oh, well, then I've got to believe that the hydro and hydrocarbons are worth something. And if you're in, you know... Um, Right. Saudi Arabia or uh, Norway, where a huge portion of your GDP is based upon exporting, or Alberta, where a huge portion of your GDP is based upon exporting hydrocarbons, and the value of your asset is those reserves, those hydrocarbon reserves, they have to believe the hydro in hydrocarbons is worth something. Mm. And it's not going to be. It's just our demand for yeah. hydrogen. I, I have a... Um, uh, this is one of the places where I have a very different perspective than the rest of the world. But I've looked at all these domain areas. We don't have a demand for hydrogen for any age. It's too expensive. Our economy will be vastly more efficient. It'll be electrified end-to-end, 99%. You know, the, we'll be doing some biofuels for marine shipping and aviation for the longer bits. And, you know, there's not a place for hydrogen for energy in that. Now, Michael Lee Brick. I want to. So I, I, I that, but, yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, I want to plant this question in your head, and, but and I want to get to it in a second. Um, the question is, you know, I know you have friends in Alberta, but you know, I live in Alberta. I think you know, we're certainly obviously your 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 thoughts are twenty forty, twenty fifty, twenty one hundred. People are kind of living though in a reality of now, trying to think about okay. 
they hear this and it's like, oh shit, like everyone kind of, I think people generally know the sane ones, I feel like in this province know that the world is decarbonizing, that mm-hmm. at some point there's going to be peak oil demand, whether you agree 2030 or whether you agree later, at some point it's going to happen. Um, but I think there was always this kind of hope that there was something else for Alberta from an energy standpoint. So hold on to this question of like, you know, what do you tell those people who, you know, it sounds like they're, I'm not hearing any sort of optimistic energy future for for Alberta. So so hold on to that question. But what I was going to ask you about on the transportation side was there are companies though, like, you know, Cummins and other sort of freight carriers that are investing money into fuel cell technology. I think Boeing is even looking into hydrogen fuel cell technology for their planes. Um, you know, I've heard that from a, from a heavy freight standpoint, at least for heavy trucking anyways, um, you know, the weights matter a lot. And so, you know, I know you said battery battery density is increasing and so on. And you pointed out the Tesla, Tesla semis, but, but my understanding is that for long haul trucking, long haul, not the, not mm-hmm. the short haul, not the, you know, long haul trucking when they're traveling, you know, 12, 1500 miles and time matters and weights matter that there might still be a case for hydrogen fuel cell technology. <clears throat> so I just want to jump into, into those scenarios, I guess. Sure. Um, so no, there isn't. Um, and I, I've had these conversations globally. Um, you know, perhaps one of the best, most in-depth conversations I had was with David Seabon, who's a professor of mechanical engineering at uh, Cambridge. I hope he's at Cambridge, not Oxford. I keep getting those two mixed up. <clears throat> it's like at least I never say he's at Yale or Harvard. <clears throat> but he's also the founder and director of the Center for Sustainable Road Freight. Yeah. This is a guy who mm-hmm. spent twenty years, the first twenty years of his career, studying heavy road vehicles, um, their impacts on roads and efficiencies for them, and the past 14 years of his life studying decarbonization of road freight. Um, so, and he mm-hmm. runs a conference every year. I, I analyzed the um, agenda of the conference and the proceedings of the conference from last year. I think it was December. And basically, in the sustainable road freight space, everything's electrification and there's a couple of, oh, here's some stuff on hydrogen that continues to make it obvious it's not a player. Um, so back to battery energy density. Right now, the Tesla Semi did a 1,000 miles, 1,600 kilometers in a single day of fully loaded service. Yep. It can do 800 kilometers on a single charge, 500 miles on a single charge. Um, its battery energy density is 269 watt hours per kilogram. CATL just announced mm-hmm. double that. 500 kilowatt hours. So that that thousand miles, 1500 kilometers, 1600 kilometers turns into 2000 miles, 3200 kilometers, right? Oh, well, gee, that's a single day. Huh. Okay. So that starts to look good. And the silicon battery energy densities, which we've already unlocked in three different firms and three different technology stacks. So one of them is going to work and be commercially viable by 2035, 2040. We're going to see five times that, right? And so what that means is that the longest haul truck today, the diesel truck in the United States today, has enough gas to run about 2,200 miles, about, you know, just over 3,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. We're almost there. The problem is just getting electricity to them, and that's vastly easier than getting hydrogen to them. Electricity is much easier to transmit and distribute mm-hmm. than hydrogen is. Hydrogen is yep, pretty much true. the worst subject. Yep. Here's here's one for you. How many tanker trucks of hydrogen 
that are the same size as a tanker truck of gasoline does it take to fill a gas station with the same energy? I have no idea, but I imagine a lot more. 14. Wow. So every gas station is going to get 14 times as many trucks driving to it just to deliver the hydrogen? No. Oh, no, we'll just make the hydrogen from water at the gas station. Oh, so you're going to put three times the electricity to the gas station to make the hydrogen and more to pump and compress and store it than just using electricity directly. Why would you do that? Right? As soon as you start asking these really basic questions, mm-hmm. the entire long-haul um, trucking thing, they're, they're out to launch on that. Um, the, and there's an empirical statement I'll make. I said earlier there's 500,000 electric trucks and 600,000 electric buses running on the roads of China. Absurdly, absurdly uh, dynamic uh, economy. These are not sitting around idle. Mm. Like buses Mm. in China run all the time, right? And so Mm. 1.1 million of uh, heavy-duty, regular-use vehicles, under 10,000 fuel cell vehicles in the entire country. That experiment has already been run. It's already been won in China. Uh, And I'll give you the other example. Uh, Mining. Big cats, right? The biggest vehicles in the world that are used in mining stuff. Alberta knows Mm. these things. The caterpillar, I spent some time, the local caterpillar um, dealership was one client of mine. They sold a lot of trucks Mm. uh, and serviced a lot of trucks in the the oil sands. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, BHP, one of the biggest mining companies in the world, Rio Tinto, one of the biggest mining companies in the world, and BH and mm-hmm. Fortescue Mining Group, not one of the biggest ones, but still pretty damn big, um, all announced separately and together um, that they weren't going to bother with hydrogen for their mining. It's all going to be electricity. It's all going to be battery electricity. Mm. And Caterpillar, 80% of the alternative vehicles they sell are all electric. Their, their strategy is electric. Hydrogen doesn't have a play anywhere in any of these things um yeah it's that's just so, the nature so, of the so why why are so why are these big companies some of them investing money into this fuel cell technology oh, like well something's not lining up is that more you think from a from a greenwashing standpoint or do you think there's like i don't know yeah doesn't make like cummins is like is a trucking company like why would they be spending a ton of money on this i don't get it well uh, people ask me that question i say well have you looked at what they're doing with their internal combustion engines? I say, well, no, they're no. using fuel cells. Well, no, they're they're converting their fuel cells and they're proving that internal combustion engines will work with hydrogen. Their intent is to, if they, so Man, Cummins, Varzilla, all massive mm. manufacturers of internal combustion engines, all of their mm. intellectual capital is worth nothing in the coming years unless Mm. they can convince people that hydrogen as a transportation fuel is good and there's a strong use case for internal combustion engines doing it. They have virtually no intellectual Mm. capital in fuel cells and electric drivetrains. They're trying Mm. to do something there, but they're really hoping to sell a lot of internal combustion engines because otherwise all their intellectual capital, all their plants that manufacture those really complex, really amazing. I mean, I all, all, all praise to the engineers who made the internal combustion engine. What a marvel of engineering it is. 
I, I really am impressed. It's mm -hmm. just aston astounding how much more energy and less pollution we get out of every internal combustion engine. But that's all worthless now. We've got something better, and we're going to use it. 1.1 million electric heavy-use vehicles on the roads of China. All mining giants saying electric in the worst conditions, like a Cat D9 electric, please. You know, one of those little Tonka toy trucks that's actually 30 times the height of a man, electric. That's the way the world is going. There's nothing there for hydrogen. But yeah. the same thing, right? Cummins, Mann, Varzilla, and I've spoken to, you know, people from all, from all three. Um, they just refuse to get the memo because if they get the memo, they don't have a business. It's like uh, natural gas mm -hmm. um, utilities, like uh, Fortis BC here. The memo they need to get is they need to do a strategic shutdown of their natural gas distribution network to avoid a utility death spiral. They need to follow the lead of Utrecht in the Netherlands, which is doing that. Sub-isolation network by sub-isolation network. They've published a schedule through 2035 so everybody in the city knows when their gas will be shut off. And they've got a process to replace those with district heating and heat pumps. That's the strategy for those utilities. How many natural gas mm. utilities are doing that versus trying to inject <laughs> green hydrogen into, into their thing or get non-existent hydrogen boilers for heating or non-existent hydrogen gas stoves to replace gas stoves? Yep. Right? You just kind of like look at that and go, they, their business model is dead. They're trying desperately for it not to be dead. And so the cognitive biases are incredibly strong. And there's a bubble of them. I mean, mm. I talked about the natural gas people. Let's take a guy who buys um, buys heat for a cement plant. They're buying natural gas today. Um, they say, okay, I've got my cement plant. I'm buying uh, natural gas. Hey, who am I going to ask about how I get heat tomorrow? They don't say, oh, I need mm -hmm. heat. They say, oh, I need a replacement gas to burn. And who do they ask? They ask their natural gas supplier. And the natural gas supplier says, oh, mm -hmm. It's going to be hydrogen or hydrogen man manufactured into methane with CO2 captured CO2, or it's going to be biomethane. They tell them a bunch of things which they'd really like to hear, none of which will bear mm -hmm. out because the guy who builds the electrically powered cement plant um, is going to have a much cheaper cement product, and the ones that don't go down right. that path will be out of business. But it's very easy for people to believe that. That's why, once again, those three things, the basics of science, the basics yeah. of economics, the basics yeah. of how human beings really are, right? It's like we can't change human nature, but human nature doesn't change economics or science, right? So the fact that a bunch mm -hmm. of people are in denial is just very human of them, that they tell each other lies and think that they're telling the truth is just human nature. You know, that global petroleum conference, a bunch of people got together and told each other comforting lies. Um, and the hydrogen stuff. Yeah. You know, I mentioned Michael Liebreich. He's got a great quote. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's going to take till 2030 before the hydrogen for energy bubble finally pops because that's how long it takes to deprogram a cult. Um, but we see it every single week. Every single week, there's another story about somebody having run a hydrogen for energy trial and abandoning it because the costs don't work or doing the cost case for hydrogen for energy and saying, 
we can't do that and doing batteries instead. You know, it's just every single week. Like um, one of the more recent ones, Lower Saxony. Um, Lower Saxony in Germany. It's a province of Germany. Uh, bizarrely, it's above mm-hmm. Saxony. It's north of Saxony. Um, <laughs> um, but Lower Saxony actually bought a bunch of hydrogen fuel cell trains from uh, um, Alstom. And after running them for a while, they said, we're never going to buy a hydrogen fuel cell train again because they're just way too expensive. They're three times as expensive as just using electricity with batteries. Meanwhile, um, Baden-Württemberger, I think it is, which is another province of Germany um, nearby, mm. actually did the math. Did, they had their spreadsheet jockeys do the analysis before buying any of those. And mm. they said, oh, well, direct catenary overhead lines or a hybrid with batteries for the parts where we can't cheaply put in overhead lines are three times or third the cost of hydrogen. So every time mm-hmm. anybody actually does the math about hydrogen for energy, it turns out to be three times or more the cost of just using electricity. But there's a lot of people who are really invested in trying to preserve their businesses who are trying to pretend otherwise. Sure. Okay, I want to I want to end off with this question. With everything that you just told me today, when you think about Canada and Alberta's energy future in particular, I guess, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Uh, keeps me up at night. Um, so, no. Uh, Alberta is going to be a diminishing force in Canadian politics because fossil fuels will be a diminishing force in Canadian politics. Hmm. It has been for a while. Um, uh, there's um, three or four things. One, uh, the World Bank does oil rents, coal rents, and gas rents. And what that is is the percentage of a federal, of a national economy that comes from coal, gas, or oil. Right, so the GDP, specifically the measure of GDP. Canada's used to be about a 10% oil rent. And right now, with coal, oil, and natural gas, 1.7% of our economy, direct economy, is from fossil fuels. We have very little, mm-hmm. um, we, you know, it's, uh, Houston area by contrast is 25%, just the Houston area. 25% of the Houston area's economy is directly from fossil fuels, but they also do a lot of refining. 14% of that is from mm. refining mm. and making stuff. Um, all that's going away. Houston, by the way, is economically dead in the coming decades and a huge barrier island costing 57 billion. They want, they want Congress to bow for them as a complete waste of money. Um, but so Canada, um, there was this really interesting thing, um, a few weeks ago, a, um, an analyst in the United States said, why is everybody freaking out in Canada? In the past decade, Canada's economy has diversified very substantially away from pure hewers of wood and drawers of water. Are mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. economic diversification strategies the Liberals have put in has actually benefited every single Canadian with a much more resilient economy. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the carbon price, which the Liberals brought in, is increasing, and it's giving that money back to Canadians. So it's, you know, a revenue-neutral carbon price. I don't get it because I live in BC and we're on California's cap-and-trade program, but you get it because you're in Alberta. And, you know, when <laughs> Kenny came in, he killed the carbon price. So, you know, mm. and Ontario, which is another conservative province right now, Ford mm. killed the carbon price. And so, 
you know, cost billions for the uh, businesses to readapt. And, but they're getting checks from the federal government. That check means we're going to be better positioned for the EU carbon border adjustment than the vast majority of economies in the world. Because we're already paying that. And we're already adjusting our carbon downward. Um, right now, we're in a situation where um, our economy in Canada, with one exception, has decarbonized substantially since 1990. That one exception is Alberta and Saskatchewan's fossil fuel industry, and to a lesser mm -hmm. extent, BC's fossil fuel industry. As they go away, our carbon emissions will plummet. Right, and once again, Alberta's primary product will be first off the market. So Canada will actually mm -hmm. see very significant benefits from that. Anything we ship to the EU from our much more diversified economy will be there, um, and it's only one point seven percent of our economy that's going away. Right. Mm -hmm. This is not a big deal. It just feels like a big deal because they're so noisy. And you, you live in Alberta. So, you know, so next thing, um, we're not going to be exporting natural gas. We're not going to be exporting hydrogen. Those are pipe dreams. Um, mm -hmm. Those will be diminishing markets and they'll disappear. Um, lithium brine uh, extraction has now started in Alberta. So that's a really good news story. Unconventional lithium extraction. Mm -hmm. yeah. We used to be, yeah. Kenby used to be the global leader in lithium extraction with hard rock mining in Quebec. Uh, back when it was, you know, used for make people really, really just it was terrible use of it. Mental health stuff. Uh, but now Canada actually can be a leader in lithium extraction and every other metal for batteries. We're going to need a lot of batteries. Mm -hmm. Right, so yeah. that's a great spot, and we are a global leader in hard rock mining. Um, when I used to be with the global technology firm, it was very simple. If we were in a country that wasn't Canada, we'd bring Canadians to the proposals. If we were pitching in Canada, we'd bring Australians, <laughs> um, <laughs> because Canadians were global leaders in hard rock mining, and so mm. you know mm. we've got a strong advantage there. And Alberta's got um, the same place that. Um, uh, uh, oil deposits are has lithium brine deposits. So there's a strong opportunity mm -hmm. for unconventional mm -hmm. extraction there, and some of the same technologies. Yeah. Uh, Alberta actually has. Um, I did the math recently. The total demand for solar and wind to meet all of Alberta's needs is a tiny fraction of the land use of agriculture, and a tiny fraction, even smaller percentage of the land use of Mm -hmm. um, the oil sands right now. Alberta has the opportunity right. to, um, and, and of course, it is complete. The current government is completely and utterly sabotaging it by putting up a big closed for business for renewables sign on. Um, it actually mm -hmm. has a very good opportunity to become a renewable power, a renewable energy powerhouse. It had the biggest pipeline of projects because of the liberalization, because of the notly government stuff, and because Kenny didn't screw that up. Gave everybody in Canada a big pause. It slowed down, but he didn't cut the pipeline off. And mm -hmm. then the Kenny government leaned into right. renewables. Meanwhile, the current administration, under Danielle Smith, has <coughs> cut that pipeline off. And now everybody's mm -hmm. going, okay, mm -hmm. it's like Ontario. They've just put up a big close for business. We'll just go to a different geography and do our business. Mm -hmm. right? And so you know, Alberta has basically right. shot its energy future in the foot. Um, and it doesn't have an energy future in its traditional uh, legacy energy uh, industry. Uh, I hope that it leans into yeah. lithium extraction. I 
can't imagine. I, I can't imagine. I, personally, I, I would not be completely unsurprised if they took away the license to do business from the lith, unconventional lithium extraction facility because yeah. uh, they had to test for environmental destruction and farmland use compared to the oil sands. Get a grip. Yeah, Alberta's um, government. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm I'm definitely appalled with the with the inconsistency that this government has applied with this renewable sector that it wouldn't have applied on the oil and gas sector, right? Like it's it's sort of the wild west. If you want an oil and gas permit, you, you know, it's not probably not that hard to get it. But you know, as far as renewables, yeah, let's just put a close. You know, it's just it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like, sure, we can listen to people's legit concerns, but do you have to give? I always thought investor certainty was something that, you know. Uh, that was a thing, but uh, all of a sudden you just created a bunch. It's just very inconsistent that I'm really appalled with. Um, you know, on the, on the, on the, um, you said one point something percent as far as the oil gas sector's contributions to, to Canada's cool. economy. And if that was gone, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, um, you know, that big of a deal. I do, I do think about, you know, this is less of an economic argument, but more of a, of a societal argument. I do feel though for, you know, there's generations of families who have been participating in the oil and gas sector. Communities are based on it, and there's kind of a there's an identity here in Alberta, obviously, of, of being attached to that sector. I think that people are having a hard time maybe adjusting to that, and so I do feel from that perspective of yes, while from an economic standpoint, there's not really much of an argument in terms of its contributions going forward, perhaps, but. Um, in terms of the the societal impacts and, and what that's doing for people right now, I think I do feel for for people from that perspective. Um, are you okay if we shift to our last two questions? Sure, um, I'm gonna get get up for my walk with my spouse soon, so um, I'm I'm good for another few minutes. No worries. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll breeze right through these. So our, our five for dinner question: Dead or alive? Who are five people you'd want to have dinner with? Sure, uh, Dorothy Parker, Ian Banks, Salman Rushdie, Margaret Atwood, and Angela Merkel. So uh, Dorothy Parker, of course, was the absurdly witty, sarcastic writer, um, member of the Algonquin Circle. Uh, what was her? What was um, my favorite of hers? Uh, martinis are the drink I love the most. Mart uh, martinis are the drink I love the most. But I can only have no martinis are the drink I love. But I can have one at most. Two and I'm under the table. Three and I'm under the host. Um, she'd just be such a sparkling <laughs> dinner conversationalist. Um, dead. Uh, yeah. Ian Banks is uh, an, a Scottish author, amazing author. Every year he published a book. One year it was literary fiction, um, uh, yeah. and other year it was science fiction. And some of the most insightful, deep, interesting science fiction that's ever been written. Um, he'd be amazing. Um, and Scottish, so of course he'd be a lot of fun. Salman Rushdie. Yeah. Um, yeah. author of, you know, of the satanic verses and, you know, had death threats and alarm protection, mm. but an amazingly nuanced, interesting author who's had a mm. global impact and global reach. And he's lived through some of the most interesting socio and culturally dynamic times in a very specific way. Uh, Margaret Atwood, I've actually had lunch with Margaret Atwood twice. Um, mm. I was her pro bono clean energy uh, oh. consultant and she invited me to lunch a couple of times and I went, just her and I it was great she is so <laughs> that's amazing I know it was, it was awesome she's brilliant um and it was she's everything you'd imagine Margaret I would be is a lunch companion and you know now I can actually tell people in America about her about that because you know the handmaid's tale got big and Angela Merkel <laughs> Angela Merkel oh the former uh, chancellor mm -hmm. of Germany she was like a, a PhD mm -hmm. in uh, physics 
um, you know, and mm-hmm. just a brilliant person, insanely competent, knows, knew everybody, knew everything. Her IQ must be off yeah. the charts. And of course, during the Syrian um, refugee crisis, the government let in a million Syrian refugees, exactly the right thing to do from uh, a humanitarian thing and, you know, very good for the country. And of course she was punished for it. Um, you know, she lost political power yeah. because of that. Otherwise yeah. we'd still have the amazing Merkel. Um, but yeah, um, mm-hmm. that would, that would be my five. Um, Parker, Banks, Rushdie, Atwood and Merkel. So. Very cool list. Very cool list. Thanks for going through those. Uh, and thanks for thinking about how they would kind of all fit together at a, at a dinner table to appreciate that. Uh, last question, besides well, circle did, of life, what I do you know I did sure? think about George R. R. Martin. I said, no, he wouldn't fit at the dinner table. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he leaves Santa Fe much anymore. So friends of mine run into him on the street occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, next question. Besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Uh, what do I know for sure? Um, that manufacturing something we burn once and di- and it disappears is something that we're not going to be doing a lot of in the future. Hmm. Right, right now, um, I'll, I'll just give you some some funds. It's about eighteen billion tons of fossil fuels we extract, and virtually all of every year. 18 billion tons, and we burn them, almost all of them. And they're never used again. They're of no use after that. 18 mm-hmm. billion tons. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to go from that where we're treating the atmosphere as an open sewer, but we extract massive amounts only in terms of throw them away. We're not going to repeat that yeah. in an economic world. We're going to reuse things as much as possible. Let's just take briefly. A lithium-ion battery in a, in a car, it lasts 10 years, and we recharge it hundreds of times, maybe mm. thousands of times, depending on how much you drive. And mm. then at the end of that lifespan, maybe it gets turned into a stationary battery because it still can take 80% of its charge. It's you know, not as good, good enough for a Model mm. S anymore. You know, it won't do plaid mode anymore. Mm. You know? But we'll put it in the ground, <laughs> and it'll have another 20 years life. And then we'll take the 80 kilograms of lithium out of it, and we'll process that, we'll mine that battery, and we'll reuse it for another cycle like that. Mm. And we'll just mm. be putting electrons from wind and solar into that. Why would we manufacture yeah. something in order to burn it? Uh, I know yeah. this is something I know. <laughs> so, Matuna Katata, or whatever it is that Circle of Life song is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I appreciate that. Mike, I appreciate the conversation you definitely on the, especially on the hydrogen front. Uh, um, that was, that was really interesting and I definitely hadn't considered a lot of those, a lot of those pieces. And I would say definitely feeling less optimistic about hydrogen and I definitely want to talk to some more people about this one, but, um, it's interesting your perspectives on that. And yeah, just appreciate you talking about, uh, all things energy today and, and, uh, how you're kind of seeing the world from, over the next 20, 30, 40, 50, and beyond. So um, thanks so much for making time for me today. Appreciate having you. Uh, I guess people can continue to read about your work on Clean Technica. Is that right? Um, Clean Technica or you know, just follow me on LinkedIn. That's a really good way to, to, to track me down. Oh, I will say there is one growth um, area for um, Alberta, which is federal money for cleanup of the fossil fuel industries leave behind mess. Mm. That's about $250 billion mm-hmm. in uh, liabilities which are unfunded. 
uh, there, and that's mostly going to be run out of Calgary, I assume. So, or out of, um, yeah. uh, it'll be administered out of Edmonton, but a bunch of Calgary people will be doing it. Mm -hmm. So, there, there is a growth industry. Yeah. It's not one you want to hear about, though. So, sure. Yep. Yep. No, that's fair. Um, all right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for uh, watching and listening today. Subscribe, like, all those good things, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Thanks, Cheers, everybody.